How many of you have ever won the lottery? Trick question, because you shouldn't be playing the lottery as Christians, right? Don't gamble, right? How many of you ever won something lottery-ish? You know, bingo, something along those lines. Yeah, as you probably know, um, winning the lottery doesn't always turn out the way that you think it will. You probably heard of these individuals who have won like millions and millions of dollars and then they squander it over the next few years and they're in greater debt at the end than when they began. Proverbs 13:11 tells us that wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase. According to one source that I read, uh, over 70% of all lottery winners go bankrupt within the first few years of their winning. 70%. And those that don't go bankrupt, sometimes they find out that money presents even more challenges and stress than having no money. Uh, winning the lottery isn't always a good thing, in other words. Maybe you remember those books a few years ago in those movies, The Hunger Games? It takes place in this like dystopian future and each district has a lottery that they uh, have to pick two different tributes from each district and the, those teenagers have to go and fight to the death at the pleasure of their government. You don't want to win that lottery, do you? Apparently this is like children's literature too, so have fun kids, I guess. Um, maybe, maybe you're a little bit older than that and remember reading that short story when you were in high school called The Lottery. Remember that by Shirley Jackson? Small town has this annual lottery and whoever gets picked gets stoned to death to like promise new crops or something like that. I forget exactly how it went. Why do they make us read such weird things in public high schools? I don't know. But the point is that sometimes winning the lottery isn't actually winning everything or anything. And that's what we're going to see, very similar to what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 11 today. We have a couple ushers who are happy to pass out Bibles. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. And these are our gifts to you. So if you need a Bible to take home with you, uh, it's yours. But we're at the end, almost at the end of the book of Nehemiah. Let me just recap a few things quickly for you to make sure we understand what we are reading before, that, before we read it. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah go together. And they take place at the end of Israel's 70 years of exile. Seven decades of exile the Israelites have spent. And God's people are then allowed to go back into the promised land and rebuild their temple, rebuild their walls. It's not an easy task. All along the way, there are hardships. We saw in the both books of Ezra and Nehemiah that uh, there were hardships inside the community. They were facing their own sin and wrestling with hardships from within. And there, were, there was opposition from without. People around them were trying to stop the progress of God's people. But at this point in the book, in Nehemiah 11, the temple has been rebuilt. The wall around Jerusalem has been restored. And the people can now settle back into the old rhythms and routine of being the promised people in the promised land. But there's a slight problem. Let me remind you of what that problem is. We actually saw a few weeks ago in Nehemiah chapter 7. So let me read to you Nehemiah 7 verse 4, which will illustrate the problem of our text this morning. Nehemiah 7 4 says, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So the issue is the temple is up and running. The wall around the city has been rebuilt. But the problem is the city itself is underpopulated. No one wants to live in this city. Remember the situation here. The people 
were in 70 years of exile in Babylon and Persia. And at first, you know, you think about exile, that sounds like a real pain, doesn't it? It sounds like a real inconvenience, and I'm sure it was in many ways. But if you read the prophets, what you begin to realize is that the people who were exiled, they were the lucky ones. They were the fortunate ones, the people who were in other lands. Jeremiah 24, the prophet, sees this vision of good figs and bad figs. And God tells him the good figs represent the people who got exiled and the bad figs represent the people who are still in the land. And that's because when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem, 586 BC, they did one of three things to the people in the city. They either slaughtered them, they exiled them, or they left them in the land. And those who were left in the land were kind of the riffraff, the losers who were left in the land. When they brought people into exile, they typically tried to bring the higher-ups in society. They brought the well-educated. They brought the well-off because what they thought was, the Babylonians thought, we could brainwash these people. We could give them our own customs and force them into our own regulations. And by doing that, their talents are now going to be going to work for us, not for themselves. Leave the riffraff in the land, and that way they can't rebuild society. Take the best of them with us, kill the rest, and that's what happened with the people in the land. So those who were left in the land were the ones that really suffered. The people who went to Babylon, who ended up in Persia later, ended up in nice homes. They ate good food. They had good jobs. They had a secure economy. They ended up being the fortunate ones. So 70 years later, exile ends, and the people are allowed to return home. And when a bunch of faithful Israelites leave the comforts of Babylon and they return home, they find their capital city in ruins. It's so bad, no one wants to go back in it. But they take time to rebuild the temple. That's the story of Ezra. They fortify the walls around the city. That's the story of Nehemiah. And then they look around the city and say, no one's living here. All this hard work we've done, and no one wants to come back and live in this city. So chapter 7, Nehemiah looks around and he says, this is a problem. Jerusalem is underpopulated. But as he's looking at this problem, he finds this old list, this old document of the first returned exiles. And that gives him encouragement. He realizes if God was faithful in the past to bring back people into this city, God can be faithful again today to repopulate this city as well. And then what we have is chapters 8 to 9 of Nehemiah. It's kind of a pause in that problem. It doesn't solve the problem of the underpopulated city, but Nehemiah 8 to 10 tells us that a revival happened among God's people. Nehemiah 8, the people read the law. They study the Bible. Nehemiah 9, as a result of their study, they repent and they pray. And Nehemiah 10, they make this commitment to renew their covenant with the Lord, their God. All of that, Nehemiah 8 to 10, is like a giant literary parenthesis, a big parenthesis in the text. It pauses the action of the text. It's kind of like the narrator saying, who cares if Jerusalem isn't populated, if the kinds of things aren't happening in the hearts of the people that need to be happening? Doesn't matter what's happening in the city. They've got to get themselves right before they get the city right. But at this point in Nehemiah 11, we return to that problem of Nehemiah 7. The city needs more bodies. What will the people do? How are they going to solve this problem? The people are living in comfortable towns around the city, but they need more people inside the city to keep things running. 
who's going to volunteer for that job? And the answer is, they hold a lottery. They hold a lottery. Look at verses 1 to 2 of Nehemiah chapter 11. It says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. I almost forgot. Uh, before I go any further, I forgot to mention, I, I, this text kind of inspired us. Take a moment and look under your seat. Right now, take a moment, look under your seat. Uh, before the service, we randomly selected a few seats to be winners of a Riverstone lottery. I'm not joking. We are giving things away right now. A few lucky people are going to find a Riverstone notebook. Does anyone have one? Did you find one? It's taped underneath your seat. You might want to check under the seat in front of you, too. There's a possibility. Like, if there's no one sitting there, that could be yours, too. Does anyone have one? Stand up if you've got one. We've got a winner over here, a winner over there. Great. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So... Not only have you won, not only have you won this really fancy Riverstone notebook, stay standing, stay standing. Um, your family has won a trip, and I'm, again, I'm not joking about this, we've really got approval in the money for this in the budget, but you and your family have won a trip to the front row of our church. So come on up with whoever you brought with you today, take your seat, prime seating right up here, front row. Yeah, come on. Praise the Lord. This is great. Excellent. You know, we had, we had a few blessed volunteers to fill the front rows this morning, you know, but um, we needed more, so we figured that's a great way to do it. Aren't you excited? Isn't, doesn't this feel like winning the lottery to you? Isn't this great? Church, do you understand the text a little bit better now? You see what we're looking at here? It's a little like sitting in the front two rows of church. There are a few weirdos who do it on a voluntary basis. <laughs> you're, you're closest to God. You know, you, you've got the, the prime seating of the worship service. But the rest of us are a lot more comfortable sitting in the back in the comfort of our own, like, little section of church. But what if, and, and I know that this is where, like, the analogy and the illustration starts to break down a bit. But what if the front two rows were necessary to be filled for a church service. Like, what if we had to have people in these rows in order for things to, to go on the right way in church? That's the situation that we see here in Nehemiah 11. Jerusalem needed to be filled. Someone had to regulate the temple activities. Someone had to guard the walls. Someone had to fill the homes. And notice how the text tells us in verse 2 that those who volunteered for that task ahead of time, for that uncomfortable relocation, those were the blessed ones. Those were the ones that we say, praise the Lord, we needed volunteers to do this, to prioritize commitment to the temple over comfort in their living situation. And I think that's part of what this text is teaching us today. Believers prioritize commitment over comfort. Believers prioritize commitment over comfort. There are times when God's call on your life makes no earthly sense. But it only makes sense when seen from a heavenly or spiritual perspective. 
It makes no earthly sense for the believers in Persia to give up their cushy jobs, to leave their beautiful homes, to walk away from a structured, supportive, well-organized civilization, go 500 miles across a desert to a place they've never even seen, and start from scratch in a land ravaged by war. That makes no sense. Unless God has called them to it. Likewise, what sense does it make from an earthly perspective for someone to give up a six-figure career in America to go suffer on the mission field? What sense does it make from an earthly point of view for someone to lose their reputation and, and social standing to speak out against the heresies of this culture? What sense does it make to take up our cross daily and follow after Jesus, sometimes losing family and losing friends, losing position, losing prestige in order to follow the commands of God. From an earthly perspective, that makes no sense whatsoever. But from a heavenly, from a spiritual perspective, committing to Jesus over the comforts of our life makes the most sense of all, doesn't it? God has not called us as Christians to a comfortable life. He has called us to live a life of sacrifice, a life of hardship, and a life of suffering. It's not all suffering and hardship. We've seen that in Nehemiah as well. But the Bible tells us that all who desire to live a godly life for Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible tells us as Christians we should expect trials of all kinds to come our way. So we have to look at life with this kind of reality. It is not always convenient to be a Christian, is it? It's not convenient to get up early on a Sunday morning to worship Jesus. I had a long week too. Sleeping in sounded good to me. It's not always easy to give up my Wednesday nights to serve in ministry or even Sunday nights or Saturday mornings. Again, as Benjamin said, I appreciate those who were here early on Saturday setting up, late on Friday, or stayed late on Saturday too to, to break down what was going on there. Praise the Lord. The book of Philippians tells us about the ultimate example of someone who uh, committed their life over the comforts of what they could have had. Do you know who that someone is? Philippians tells us Jesus emptied himself, took the form of a man, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And theologians like to talk about Jesus emptying himself of some of the privileges of heaven. He, He set aside what he could have enjoyed in order to suffer and die for you and I. You ever think about that? Was it easy for the God of the universe to become a baby? To willingly decide to go through puberty? To come to minister to the very people that he knew would one day pull out his beard and spit on him and mock him and nail his hands and his feet to a cross and kill him? That does not sound very comfortable to me at all, does it? But his love for you drove him to commit himself fully to his mission on earth. And our love for God and our love for others should drive us to prioritize our commitment to the Lord over our own comfort at times. Now at this point, for the rest of the chapter, I know you're going to be surprised to hear this, church, but the rest of this chapter is a list of names in Nehemiah 11. (laughs) These are all the names of the individuals who ended up repopulating Jerusalem. And before we read this, let me just remind you of a few things briefly here. First of all, if this is your first time, or maybe your first time in a long time, I just want to let you know this is Scripture. 
This is scripture. It, it, what we're about to read is just as inspired as John 3.16, as Romans 6.23, as all your favorite Bible passages. This is God's word, which is why we read it and why we study it and why we listen to its message. In fact, Benjamin, our, our worship leader, showed me something uh, his son Karsten made this week. I really liked it. It's one of these inspirational posters that have like a Bible verse set to a beautiful picture. You ever see these things? You know, so he made one of, of uh, can we put this image on the screen here? Nehemiah 717 of Asgad, 2322. Doesn't that inspire you? I love it. I get it. Nehemiah 717 is not one of those life verses that we like memorize and no one faces temptation and repeats of Asgad, 2322, when, you know, they're, they're going through tough times. This is not the verse you might necessarily turn to but it's still part of inspired scripture, right? Nehemiah 11 represents the fulfillment of the desires of the covenant community. Far from a list of ancient names, this is a very exciting text, especially for the original readers. This passage represents what the Israelites longed for for 70 years. Remember the prophet Daniel? Daniel 9, he's, the prophet's an old man. He's in Persia. And he's reading the prophecies of Jeremiah about the 70 years of exile. And in Daniel 9, that prophet is desperately seeking the Lord's fulfillment in prayer, in fasting. He's wearing sackcloth and ashes. The earnest prayers of Daniel in Nehemiah 9 are fulfilled, or excuse me, of Daniel 9 are fulfilled in Nehemiah 11. This passage that we're about to read is what the Israelites dreamed about. Their city repopulated. So I want you to read it like that, with that kind of excitement. To help us along, I'm going to put a brief outline on the screen for you. I'm going to read the text, and I would encourage you to either read it along with me in, in your Bibles, or look at how that text is organized to kind of follow what we're reading. So let's start in Nehemiah 11, starting in verse 3. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, each lived on his own property in their cities, the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. Some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalalalalal, of the sons of Perez, and Maesiah, the son of Baruch, the son of Colhose, the son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, the son of Jorib, the son of Zechariah, the son of Shilon the Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 able men. Now we look at the sons of Benjamin. These are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Joed, the son of Padiah, the son of Coliah, the son of Maesiah, the son of Ithiel, the son of Jeshiah, and after him, Gabai and Salai, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanua, was the second in command of the city. Verse 10. From the priests, Jediah, the son of Joreb, Jachin, Sariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Marioth, the son of Ahitub, the leader of the house of God, and their kinsmen who performed the work of the temple, 822. And Adiah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Peliah, the son of Amzi, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Melchizedek, and his kinsmen, head of the father's households, 242. And Amashai, the son of Azarel, the son of Azhai, the son of Meshulamoth, the son of Immer, and their brothers, valiant warriors, 128. And their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolim. Verse 15. Now from the Levites. Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, the son of Azrikim, 
the son of Hashabiah, the son of Buni, the son of Shebathai, and Josabad, from the leaders of the Levites who were in charge of the outside work of the house of God. And Madaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was a leader in beginning the thanksgiving at prayer, and Bakbukiah, the second among the brethren, and Abda, the son of Shemua, the son of Galal, the son of Jeduthun, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. Verse 19, also the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brethren, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. Let's pause there for a minute. These were representatives from each groups of the people of Israel. People from Judah, people from the tribe of Benjamin, people from the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers. And these were the kinds of people that were necessary to keep the temple up and running. They were needed to keep this holy city moving, to safely repopulate it. Altogether here, we have a little over 3,000 people represented on this list. You add to that their wives and kids, and we're talking probably 10 to 15,000 people that were chosen to come in and repopulate Jerusalem. And it's a tedious list, I get that. But in the details of this list, you can really hear some of the, the emphases of the narrator. For example, uh, maybe you noticed in verse 6, it calls the sons of Judah able men. Able men. The Hebrew phrase here is anshe chayil. It's a kind of a manly phrase, anshe chayil. You got a when you say it. Valiant men. Then again in verse 14, it calls the priest valiant warriors, gibor chayil. Just you kind of want to growl as you say it. And that's a phrase that's used many times in the Bible of manly men who do incredible things. It's used of guys like Jephthah, noble men like Boaz, warriors like David's mighty men, Gibor, Chayil. These are phrases used of warriors, here used of priests. The narrator wants us to know the people who went to repopulate Jerusalem, they were no cowards. It takes manly men and womanly women <laughs> to sit in the front row at church is what it's saying here. You have to be brave. That's the thing when you follow God. Believers prioritize commitment over comfort. Only the strong survive. Christianity is not for the weak at heart. Some of the bravest, toughest people I know are missionaries. Some of the bravest and toughest people I know are ministers of the gospel. Some of the bravest and toughest people I know are Christians. We also see the priority of worship in this list of names. Look again at verse 17. Whenever you read the Bible, you read a list of names like this, it can get, you know, it can get difficult and tedious, but one of the helpful things, like if you ever come across a passage like this in your devotions, one of the helpful things is to notice things that are different in this list. What sticks out? If you have a list of a lot of repetition, the things that stick out are oftentimes the things that the narrator wants us to pay closest attention to. So verse 17, look at that again. Madaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, who was the leader in beginning the thanksgiving at prayer. In other words, out of all these names on this list, the narrator stops and says, oh, by the way, this guy was our worship leader. This is the Benjamin Harding of the group. The narrator stops this list and tells us this with pride which tells me that the believers prioritized worship. They were committed to it, even above their own comfort. Now, I want to give you a few things to think about in relation to this, in application. 
And I want to say this at the outset, I, I'm still fairly new here, so I'm unaware of unique or specific circumstances that will be genuine exceptions to what I'm about to say. I, I recognize that there are genuine exceptions, and if that's the case, I mean you no offense. But I suspect that during the pandemic, some people got comfortable with watching church from the comfort of their couch rather than committing to one another in fellowship in person. And now, even years later, some people still make those excuses about why they can't come to church and why they'd still prefer to watch online and whatnot. Church cannot be watched. You can watch a service of the church, but the church is the gathered saints, a gathering of believers. And again, I recognize this might be offensive to some people who are right now watching this from online at this very moment. And, and again, I'm not talking about the exceptions. In fact, I'll say this. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I watched the service online because our family had strep throat. We didn't want to share that blessing with all of you. So we stayed home. But I suspect that there are a lot of people who need to stop making excuses and learn what it means to prioritize commitment over comfort. And that goes for those individuals, but it goes for a lot of different people in different areas and pockets of church ministry. It's not easy sometimes to get involved in a ministry. It means giving up some other things in life. It means making commitments that intrude on things that maybe you want to do. But consider how this text speaks to that. Believers prioritize commitment over comfort. Now, the rest of this chapter, we're going to read it just paragraph by paragraph, and I have just a few things I want to point out as we go. Look at verse 20 and 21, and you'll see how this supports what we've been saying all along. It says, The rest of Israel, of the priests and the Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, each on his own inheritance. But the temple servants were living in Ophel, and Zihah and Gishpah were in charge of the temple servants. Uh, Ophel was a hill just south of Jerusalem. And what this paragraph is telling us is that there were the rest of the Levites, the rest of the priests that lived outside the city. So even the people who were in charge of keeping the temple working, they recognized things were so bad we don't even want to live there. That's how bad Jerusalem was at this point in time. I, many of you know I used to live in Michigan before we came here. For about six years we lived in Michigan. And we were about 30 minutes west of Detroit. I knew a lot of people who worked in Detroit, but I don't know that I remember any people that lived in Detroit. That was for a reason. Houses were very cheap in the city, but no one bought them because no one wanted to live there because the city was in such bad shape. And I think about that in application to this passage. It's a little like Jerusalem here. The city's there. Living is cheap, but no one wants to be in it. The next paragraph gives us some insight into the political situation of that day. Verse 22, now the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Madaniah, the son of Micah, from the sons of Asaph, who were the singers for the service of the house of God. For there was a commandment from the king concerning them, and a firm regulation for the song leaders day by day. Pethahiah, the son of Meshezabel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was the king's representative in all matters concerning the people. This paragraph tells us who was in charge of the Levites and the singers. Worship through music was an incredibly important part 
of the Israelites' life, as it should be a part of our life today. If you don't believe me, you can look at the Psalms. The Psalms are 150 chapters of Scripture that give songs the Israelites sung with each other. 150 songs in Scripture preserved for us by God. Worship through song was a very important part of the Israelites' commitment to the Lord. But verses 23 and 24 here tells us something about the political situation in Jerusalem. The king had certain commandments and regulations for the singers to follow. And the king had a representative living in the city for them to obey. Now, this is not the Judean king. They didn't have a king in Israel in those days. This is the Persian king. So it's a subtle reminder here that even though the Israelites were free, even though they were living back in their own land, they weren't totally free. They were exiles even in their freedom. They were exiles in their own land. Look at the final paragraph here, verses 25 to 36. It says, Now as for the villages with their fields, some of the sons of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its towns, in Debon and its towns, in Jechabzeel and its villages, and in Jeshua, in Moladah, and Beth Pelet, and in Hazar Shual, in Beersheba and its towns, and in Ziklag, in Mekonah and its towns, and in Enrimon, in Zorah, and in Jarmuth, Zonoah, Adullam, and their villages, Lachish and its fields, Azekah and its towns. So they encamped from Beersheba as far as the valley of Hinnom. The sons of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward, at Michmash and Asia, at Bethel and its towns, at Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gataim, Hadid, Zoboam, Nibalat, Lod, and Ono, the valley of the craftsmen. From the Levites, some divisions in Judah belonged to Benjamin. So these were a list of names of different towns that people lived in outside of Jerusalem. And some of these names you actually might recognize from other passages in Ezra and Nehemiah. They were named after the people that kind of went and founded these villages. Like, oh no, you remember reading that name? Oh no, I asked my wife the other day, it's a great Bible name. I asked my wife the other day if we could rename our fourth child to oh no, to better match his personality, you know, go from Adam to oh no. Um, she said no, by the way, but... Some of you parents who maybe like you have a kid, um, surprise kid later in life, you could use this as a middle name or something like that. Like it's, it's, a great, it's a great Bible name that I think is underused. But they take this name, they use it for a town back then. And this list is just surrounding towns where the Jews were living during that time. For us as 21st century Americans, these places sound really weird, don't they? Because we don't know all these names and we're not familiar with where they're located. But imagine for a moment that this was a list of names of towns that you are familiar with. The Christians who lived outside of Yardley were encamped in Newtown and Fairless Hills and Langhorn and Trenton. Suddenly it sounds a lot more familiar to us. That's what it would have sounded like to the ears of the ancient Israelites. These were places outside of Jerusalem. Now stepping back, looking at this text as a whole, we see that the text highlights the need to repurpose our lives for something beyond just material pursuit. We are not here just for our own comfort or our own advantage. We are not here to make a name for ourselves. We, we are here to make disciples, to evangelize the lost, to go out among the nations and share the gospel with people that are out there, to glorify God with our lives, that sometimes means committing to God 
over your own comfort. That doesn't mean you've got to be a missionary to do that, although we could use more missionaries. But sometimes even in your own context, your own living situation, your own secular employment, we've got to commit to doing the uncomfortable thing. It's easy to coast through, get good grades for students, get a nice paycheck for those of us who are employed. Easy to coast through in the comforts of life without recognizing the commitment that we ought to make to the Lord. I considered this week the many examples from both missionaries in our culture and uh, examples that we've seen in Scripture. We've talked about Jesus in Philippians 2, but I was reading in 2 Corinthians this week, and I was struck by Paul's example. Let me read you a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul says, five times I, was, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That does not sound to me like a man who prioritizes his own comfort above all else in life. Our comfort can become our idol. Paul had a comfortable lifestyle before God called him to Christianity. He was well-educated, rich, prestigious, a religious leader of those days, and yet he gave up the comforts of an easy life, of a tenured position, in order to travel the world and tell others about Jesus Christ. What is God calling you to do that might not be too comfortable? That's the question I want to leave you with this morning. What is God calling you to do that might not be very comfortable? Let that question sink into our minds today as we close out in prayer. God, I pray that you would speak clearly to the hearts of every person here and let them consider how they may have perhaps uh, put as an idol in their life the comforts of life. Help them to consider what you are calling them to do that will demonstrate the sacrifice of their life and over to you. Father, I pray that you would help us to be willing to sacrifice our comforts in order to show our commitment to Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the commitment of Christ. Come down to die for us, to rise again, to be our Savior. And I pray that we can model our lives after his sacrifice, that we might be living sacrifices, Lord, holy and pleasing unto you. May you be glorified in the lives of the believers that are here at Riverstone Church today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. God bless. Thanks for being here.